Welcome to the Happy Homeschooler podcast, a digital support group for everyone interested in a learning lifestyle. I'm your host, Holly. I'm your co-host, Melody. And I'm your co-host, Jennifer. Today, we'll be interviewing Brad Baldridge, a college funding specialist who will speak to us about how to find money for college. But first, how have you all been since last time? Melody? Oh, I am so glad it's summer. Um, I'm doing nothing at all for a couple of days. <laughs> it's like, not doing anything. I'm missing my students that I usually get to see every week, you know, when you have a routine and then you suddenly change it. It's easy to lose track of what day it is. So far, we're just trying to think of some things we might want to do. My husband's not really portable with his challenges, so we won't be going to the beach. We're trying to think of some other outdoorsy summer kind of things that we want to do. Get a little but, uh, kiddie pool and stick your feet in it. <laughs> <laughs> I probably will because we've joked about doing, wanting to do that for the grandkids when they come over. We live where there's a lot of sand. No beach, but lots of sand. Oh. It's like, we need a pool. Is yeah. then we have the water and the sand. It's just the break is really nice. The break has been really nice. Yeah. What are you up to, Jennifer? Well, we live on a lake, so summer is all about lake Water. time and having friends over. And we, we don't do our homeschool co-op group during the summer, but every Monday we get together at the lake with all of our friends from co-op. And then my kids and I just, we love to adventure around here during the summertime and go to, even though we're living at a lake, we like to go check out other swimming holes and jump <laughs> off cliffs and that kind of stuff. So that it's all stuff. about the water for us. Y'all are those people that scare me when I'm at five mile dam and jumping <laughs> off stuff. I'm like, oh my gosh, I hope they can swim. <laughs> oh man. I've become immune to it over the many years and many children, but they jump off a lot of things. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> what are you up to over this ever, Holly? Like you, water figures into my plans. And also um, we're doing the summer movie thing at the local movie theater. Mm -hmm. So it's a really good deal. You I think it's a dollar per person yeah, for the movie. Yeah, that year too. Yeah, well, this year, it's really interesting. They're going to do it every day. So it used to be only, oh. I think, on Tuesday. Oh. So I'm, uh, I yeah. really like that flexibility because, yeah. you know, something's going on, on on Tuesday, then we have the option to go another day of the week or go with some friends. So yeah, we're excited about the summer movies and we're hoping that all this rain we've been having lately means we'll have water to play in yeah. uh, throughout the summer. So a lot of times it dries up. So just mm -hmm. staying cool, getting out in nature, hanging with friends, you know, summertime, the living is easy, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's go ahead and hear what Brad Baldridge has to say about paying for college. Brad, um, welcome to the podcast. We're really excited to hear your expertise. Would you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. Uh, my name is Brad Baldridge. I'm a financial planner and I specialize in late stage college planning. So I work with families that <clears throat> are trying to figure out college. Typically, they have a high school student. And they're kind of in the thick of visiting schools and trying to understand need-based aid and merit aid, and maybe they have some saving or investing that they're trying to work with as well. Um, and it can get pretty complicated, especially when you have multiple kids or you have additional complications, like things like homeschool or athletes and, and those types of things as well. Um, how did you get into this particular focus? I'm, so you're a financial planner. I would imagine you do financial planning in a lot of different areas, but how did you get into this focus? About 2005 or so, I, I got a little extra training in college planning, and it's something I enjoyed. And it was kind of at the right time because college was starting to get more and more expensive. It was becoming a bigger challenge for a lot of families, a bigger part of the financial planning of most families. And it was something I enjoyed. I started offering it up to some of the families I was working with, and then I started giving presentations on the subject. It just kind of took off from there where... Lots of people have concerns about it. I was I give presentations in high schools and that type of thing. Again, it's a place where I can add a lot of value and it makes it a little bit unique compared to most financial advisors. Yeah, it sounds like it uh, would be pretty rewarding too. Yes, absolutely. So you're saying late stage college financial planning. So late stage sounds like terminal illness. Is, is that kind of, <laughs> sounds that way to me too. Is that kind yes. of what we're talking about here? Like you, you should have done some things beforehand, but now here you are. So. Yeah. Well, yes, it, it can be that. I mean, that could be the, the hair on fire emergency situation. Certainly if you have a senior uh, or even a junior, sometimes many families will wish they have, would have started earlier if they don't start mm -hmm. till senior year for sure. But so late stage, again, is what I'm referring to, I guess, is the fact that 
you're now in the thick of actually visiting colleges and filling out forms and pursuing the process versus early stage, which is, again, middle school, grade school, high school, or, hey, we're pregnant, maybe we should plan for college. (laughs) In all those cases, there's not much to do other than, say, college is coming, maybe we'll save and invest or we'll build some sort of strategy and then wait for the kids to grow up. And then once they grow up, now you start saying, well, what types of schools are a good fit? And is it four-year, two-year community college or master's PhD, for that matter? And how will we pay for all this? And are they going to be close to home or far away? And then, of course, college is getting more and more expensive. So for many families, it's how are you going to pay for this? So that was a lot of questions for a parent to look at. So what do you recommend is like the first question to look at? Would that be what type of school you're going to? Yeah. So college planning is kind of parallel planning in that you're doing things with the student. You're doing things as parents on your own, and then you're doing things together. Mm -hmm. But generally, you're going to start with the student trying to pin down a, a career path or a major, and then some idea about what types of schools might be a good fit. Then the parents need to start with, well, what's our budget? <laughs> How much can we reasonably afford to spend? You know, do we have multiple kids? Uh, you know, that has to go into the factor for many families where mm-hmm. you know, if I spend this much on one, do I have to spend the same amount at all? Or could right. it be different for each student? From there, I think you need to move into some sort of kind of reality check. So as an example, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> where a lot of families will say, well, you know, I've got 50 bucks a month that I can put towards college. And by the way, I, I want my student to graduate with no debt and et cetera, et cetera. It's like, well, that just isn't going to work. <laughs> so that's where the reality check comes in. So the average state school right now is about 27000 and that's total cost of attendance. So that's tuition, room and board, books, fees, beer and pizza, the whole cost <laughs> of a typical student. Some of those are, are just like personal expenses and, and things that are already being paid, like the cell phone and the laundry and so maybe that's not really an increase or doesn't need to be put in the budget because it's already paid for. But for many families, there's maybe 24000 or 23000 in that mm-hmm. example that would come on the bill. It would r- roughly be 11000 12000 room and board, 11000 12000 tuition. You know, that's real bill that needs to get paid. Now, a student can borrow 5500 by themselves in their own name as a freshman, typically. Mm-hmm. And maybe they can earn another four or 5000 So maybe the student could be responsible for 10000 and the parents are then responsible for, you know, 12, 15,000 at that average school. Now, those numbers can go up quite a bit more because a lot of, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of states, their averages are 30, 32,000. And some states are, you know, quite a bit lower than that as well. So that's the first step is to understand what's going on in our state. You're talking about per year, correct? Oh, yes. Yeah, I, I'm aware of that. I'm just want yes. to make sure our listeners understand that if you haven't looked into college recently, that those costs are per year. Right. And then, you know, to add insult to injury, then we can go to the private schools. Now, the private schools list, the average is 57000 right now, but they range from about 40000 to about 80000 again, per year. And that's tuition, room and board, and the whole, whole cost. And the reason the whole cost is important is because you can borrow, as an example, under some programs up to that entire amount. Or if you get a full-ride scholarship, it will cover sometimes all of those numbers. Mm-hmm. So it, it just depends. But that's that's an official published number that all colleges uh, will provide. It's on their website. The government requires that they calculate these numbers so that we can use them for financial aid purposes, et cetera. The good news is most people don't pay that full price. That's, you know, we call that sticker price. So kind of like when you shop for a car, in the old days, there would be a sticker hanging on the window and You'd walk in and you say, how much is that car over there? Well, there's a sticker in the window. It's like, well, how much does it really cost? Because in the past, you'd get discounts and whatever, and you'd, and you'd negotiate, and they'd give you some money off. It's very similar with college, but sometimes the money off could be 10 20 50 even the entire cost. You could go for free in some situations. And that's the challenge for most families is they'll look at a private school that's 60000 and say, I can't afford it, although that school may provide 40000 in scholarships, which means... You know, net 20, it might be the same or maybe a little less than the state school. So you need to understand, you know, how scholarships work. You know, I've got scholarship guide for busy parents is on my website where we kind of give you the quick overview of how scholarships work. So parents can get up to speed um, because scholarships are a little bit confusing. They mean other, you know, different things to different people. 
and there's different types, right? There's athletic scholarships, there's merit scholarships, academic scholarships, outside scholarships. Well, you know, Coca-Cola offers a scholarship. It's yeah, in our town, the electric company has a scholarship process by which children of the electric cooperative members can apply and they can get $1,000. You know, and these little drips and drabs, they do add up. So do you advise people to like go for as many as possible or to concentrate in a certain area for scholarships? Well, that depends on the family and the and what we're up against. You pay with college with three edits. It's money and it's time and it's stress. And <laughs> sometimes the time and stress is the limiting factor of, well, my mm-hmm. student's really busy. They're taking all kinds of courses and maybe they're doing dual enrollment and not, they got to keep their grades up, et cetera, et cetera. And they're already working. And right. to expect them to do 25 scholarship applications might be a, a lot. lot. Mm-hmm. You know? Maybe we'll ask for right. three or five for other families. And again, lots of people talk about scholarships. In my experience, not many people do them. Right. You know, I, I had one family, they applied for about 40 scholarships. They won seven for $39,000 total value. Um, but they're pretty, you know, I've done 250, 300 college plans now. And that's the one that did that kind of work. Mm-hmm. Now, I've had many families where they... Okay. They win the scholarship at the college themselves. It could even be the full ride at the college, or they win a big scholarship where mom and dad work, or maybe they stack two or three together. So I've had a couple others that did 10 scholarship applications and won three or four. But of the 250, let's say, probably 50 got some sort of scholarship that took extra effort. So I'm not counting the scholarships where if you apply to this college, you're automatically considered for a scholarship, and then you win a scholarship. Well, that's, you know... Lots of people can do that, obviously, because all you have to do is apply. (laughs) Uh, Right. That's, you know, in that process, what that's really all about is colleges keep raising their prices, but in order to get students to keep coming, they've had to provide some discounts. Mm -hmm. Kind of a (laughs) catch-22. Right, exactly. And the challenge for the colleges is if they dropped their price and just said, well, since we give everybody at least $20,000 off, Why don't we just lower our price by twenty? Yeah. <laughs> well, because then people would look at your college, that college, and say, "Well, you're only forty thousand. Right. Your your competitors are sixty thousand. What's wrong with this college?" Yeah, or, I have a daughter that's uh, going to an out of state college currently, and she was awarded a scholarship. I've said in quotation marks from the school for being an out of state student, um, where it took off a considerable amount of her tuition. But they were giving those to every out of state student, you know, to attract them to their college. Right, um, and it yeah. still costs a great deal more than in state. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. In the old days, the out of state state prices were. You know, at room and board and everything was the same with the exception of tuition. And a lot of times that tuition was two and a half or three times higher than what the in-state tuition was. Mm-hmm. And what's going on right now is there's less high school graduates than there used to be. And the percentage that's going to college is kind of flat or decreasing a little bit. So there's less college students now than there was three or four or five years ago. And it's looking to continue to decline slightly for the next few years as well. So now colleges are fighting over a smaller pool of students. Mm-hmm. And some of these state schools have realized that if they get a little more reasonable with their out-of-state numbers, they can pull students and fill their classes by pulling from out-of-state. Yeah. Where in the past, they didn't worry so much about it because they had enough in-state. Why are there less high school graduates? That's intriguing to me. Less babies 18 years ago is the bottom line. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Right. I see. Yeah, that makes sense. And then a lot of people aren't going to college. They're pursuing like trade schools or other avenues for employment. Right. Yeah. And again, the percentages aren't dramatically different, but it was a growing industry for years and years and years. And that's so now colleges are in a in a declining market, which is new for a lot of them, mm. where because it used to be there was this many graduates and 30 percent went to college. And then the, the number of graduates went up and the percentages went up steadily. So now it's like 65 or 67 percent or something like that. We'll go straight to college from high school. Mm-hmm. And there's also a burgeoning adult returning student adult education markets as well. A lot of people don't realize it, but less than half of all college students are that traditional 18, 19 year old going off to college right after high school. In 2014, wow. I went back for a year. I keep going back. Uh, I haven't finished yet because I had a lot of kids. But yeah, I did notice that a lot of the students were not young students, but were more like, you know, people who had a career or they were changing careers or whatever. Um, And that I found that really interesting. Yes. 
and there's a lot of innovation in that market compared to the, the standard student market that we're talking about. And that innovation may or may not come to you know the younger generation. I think one of the other important points to realize is there's a lot of parents out there that will do whatever it takes so that their students can go off and have that four-year college experience, just like they had. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm one of them. I had a great time in college. I want my kids to have that opportunity. And because of that, there's a lot of parents you know, that are willing to pay, and that's why the prices are going up. Right. And partially is because they raise the prices, parents figure it out. They raise it some more, and parents still figure it out. Mm. They finally, yes. they finally come to that edge now where you know they're raising prices, but they're also raising scholarships to offset that. So the last five years, the net price of college has been through the pandemic and stuff has been kind of flat compared to previously where it was increasing at you know four, five, six percent. So when these parents are finding all this money, what is it impacting then their retirement? Do they go out and get an extra job? Um, how do you advise people? To cover, how do they cover that amount that's not covered by scholarship and grants and loans? Yeah. What is your advice to those parents? Many families will set up some sort of savings plan when the kids are younger. And it's never too late for that, by the way. A lot of the late stage planning I'm doing is we're saying, you know, we've got a high school sophomore, junior, even senior, and saying, well, we got 10 months before the first bill comes. If you think you can afford a thousand a month, let's start saving now because any amount we save is less that we're going to have to borrow or whatever it might be. And then a lot of times X amount per month can come out of the family budget. It's like, well, the kids are away. Theoretically, our costs go down. A lot of families will say, well, we're going to stop paying all these sports fees. And we'll have, you know, maybe we won't have as much driving going on. So we'll save a little money there. You know, the grocery bill will go down. And every time we go out for fast food, it'll be a little bit less. So there should be some savings that we can apply to college as well. And then oftentimes it's, you know, when I'm working with families, it's kind of rebuilding the budget and, with the new reality of okay, maybe we can't spend fifteen thousand on sports fees even now with the younger kids or whatever it might be. It doesn't really matter what your income is. Most families have learned how to spend all of it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Sure. So college is a shock, and at you know again, the typical family earning a hundred thousand says, well, spending fifteen or eighteen thousand net on the local state school is painful. And the typical two hundred or two hundred fifty thousand dollar family, you know, says, well, thirty or forty thousand on college is painful, but they're willing to consider again maybe a slightly more expensive private situation or whatever it might be on up, right? So sometimes as your income climbs, you say yes to more expensive options. Definitely, as your income climbs, you get less need-based aid. So there's families that are you know sending their kids to Harvard and they don't qualify for any aid at all, and they're paying all eighty thousand. Ouch. <laughs> Again, I'm not saying you should. I'm saying you could, and you could even borrow that full amount as a parent. You can't mm-hmm. borrow it as a student. Student can only right. borrow 5,500. But then that's, I guess, that's where a lot of parents can fill the gap. Is there's a parent plus loan, which the amount that you can borrow is the cost of attendance minus any other aid. So again, that situation at Harvard where you're not getting any aid, mom and dad could sign up for a loan for 80,000 each year. Again, I'm not recommending it, but. A lot of times that will fill the gap. And that's what I see with a lot of families that don't plan well is they get all the way to the end. They don't know what else to do. So they just take that loan for 30 or 50 or whatever it needs to be to make it happen. Wow. That's sobering, I'm sure, for those families. Yes. <laughs> so what what would your your ideal trajectory be? If somebody comes to you and they like, I've got a ninth grader and they want to go to college. Brad, what do we do? Yeah. So... We start with, you know, I've got a calculator on my website. Try and figure out how need-based aid is going to work for your family. The rules have just changed, by the way, so make sure you're getting up-to-date rules. What used to be called the EFC is now going to be called the SAI, or Student Aid Index. EFC was Expected Family Contribution. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're changing the name. They're reworking how the websites are going to work. It's going to be similar but different as far as the amounts that you receive and that type of thing. But once you get a feel for that, you know, I recommend, you know, again, I often recommend families, well, go plug in the, the local state school and see what makes sense and then figure out which state school is appropriate for you. So like here in Wisconsin, we've got University of Wisconsin-Madison. It's pretty competitive. In our neck of the woods, we use ACT, which is, you know, you need to have an ACT of about 28 to 30. You know, 28, you're on the bubble. You may or may not get in with a 28. And they don't look, just look at your test scores. It's also in top 10 or 15% of your class homeschool, I'm not sure what they would do as far as I, at the top of my class of one. Um, <laughs> right. So they would probably rely more on 
whatever test scores or other measurements they could find. But given that, well, there's a lot of students that that's not a real, really the option. So then they have to look at some of our other state schools. In a lot of states, the, the flagship is a, you know, a pretty strong school. And then the next level is kind of maybe a kind of a step down where, at least in rankings, that education mm-hmm. could be just as good. Right. That's the other thing, right? Is there's a lot of name brand envy going on and that type of thing. Um, mm-hmm. But depending on what you're doing, you know, if you're going to be president of the United States, maybe you do need to go to the Ivy League. If you're just going to be a teacher or a nurse, well, when's the last time you asked a teacher or a nurse, well, where do you go to college? Oh, mm-hmm. nope, I'm not working with you. There's no way. <laughs> nobody, right? nobody cares. Right, nobody cares. <laughs> right. So that's kind of the challenge of, is it worth it? Well, it may be worth it, but it may not be worth it. And even if it is worth it, can you afford to do it? Summer has come at last. During the warm months, I'd rather be sitting at the beach than stuck inside making high school transcripts by hand. Oh, that's the worst. I had to make my children's transcripts by hand in my day. Thankfully, these days, there's Transcript Maker. I'm not math phobic, but the time it took to calculate grade point averages was ridiculous. With Transcript Maker, you just plug your courses and grades into the template, and the GPA appears like magic. I've got a few kids, well, maybe more than a few. And with Transcript Maker, I was able to have multiple transcripts in my account at one time. And with so many kids, it made organization a breeze. All my transcripts were held in the cloud, safe and sound and easy to access whenever and wherever I needed to. Well, I love a good deal. I love saving money and getting discounts. And Transcript Maker is perfect for that. They offer a 14-day free trial, so you can give it a test drive and see how you like it. And for our listeners, you can get 20% off the cost of your subscription with our exclusive coupon code HAPPY. That's H-A-P-P-Y in all caps. Don't wait until the last minute. Enjoy your summer better by using Transcript Maker. Go to www.transcriptmaker.com today. Transcript Maker. Simply better transcripts. You know, so that's kind of where you start is, well, how much do we have saved? If we look at that state school, we need 15000 a year, and we have 60000 saved, oh, that looks pretty good. If we're short, well, then can we, you know, is 1000 a month doable? Is 1500 a month doable on the financial side? Um, and then kind of laying out a visit plan. Are we going to visit all these schools? Are we going to virtually visit some of them? How do we figure out what school is the good fit? From a typical student, they'd not really, if you ask them, well, do you like a big school or a small school? They'd be like, well, I don't know. I have not seen a big school or a small school. <laughs> what, what does that mean, right? And I've had family, you know, I've had families come back with feedback like, oh, we went to this little school and it, little Johnny said, it's smaller than our high school. Why would I go there? Or, <laughs> you know, things like that. And again, they have no understanding of what they're getting into until they get out their visit. Mm-hmm. And some kids, because they're at their extracurriculars or whatever, gets them on campus. You know, maybe they're running track and they go to state or something at, at a college facility or something. So they at least have some exposure. Other students have had zero exposure. That's something else that you would start. You know, I did some colleges with my sophomore this past spring. Kind of a low pressure, no pressure. Let's just go to the local college and check it out. They happen to have to be having an event on a Sunday. So it's convenient for everybody. And we'll go for a few hours. When we're tired of it, we'll come home. It's a 20-minute drive. If it turns out the school was on our list a year or two from now, we can go back and do a, you know, a more in-depth visit if we need to. But again, it's just giving her a little exposure sophomore year, junior, early junior year to help her start saying, well, I like big or small or near or far. Or these uh, tours, they keep taking me into this big fancy stadium, and I don't really care about football, so I don't know why we keep going into those stadiums. <laughs> Can you show me where the biology students study? <laughs> and you know, and sometimes the college might say, no, we don't show your biology labs because then you wouldn't come. <laughs> oh, how funny. We, uh, When my middle daughter was looking at colleges, because homeschool families, like I told you yesterday, we, we're the guidance counselors, you know, we're, we're the everything. So we just, you know, signed up for a tour and we traveled around the state of Texas a little bit. And we looked at one college in one spot, and then we looked at another college. It was very helpful to get a little taste of the atmosphere, see, you know, how far we were going to actually be driving. I don't know how people do out-of-state schools. My daughter uh, went to school three and a half hours away from us, and that was just in Texas. And, you know, to have to get to her one time she was sick and have to drive a round trip of seven hours, I was like, I'm not liking this. So 
having a kid out of state, Jennifer, I don't know how you do it. Um, <laughs> it adds a lot more expenses, not only for the education, but to get them to oh, back. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've yeah. Yeah. quite a lot. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. My son's seven hour drive away and we delivered him when he was a freshman and he came home for Thanksgiving. We flew him home for Thanksgiving because it was a seven hour drive and even the tolls were about $50 one way. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> the, the plane ticket was only $200, so <clears throat> by the time you had gas and tolls, it was cheaper to fly at home. Sure, and your hourly mm-hmm. rate, that's why I tell my kids, well, I earn this much money, so if I have to take time out of my day to do something, then that's cutting into my income, you know, <laughs> so seven right. hours. Exactly. Yeah. And then uh, after Thanksgiving was over, we, we sent him back with a car, because between Thanksgiving and Christmas break, it was only like three or four weeks, and that was so convenient that we decided, oh... Let's figure out how he can just keep the car. <laughs> so <laughs> wasn't really our intention, but it just made our life so much simpler that, you know, we didn't have to deliver him and pick him up at the beginning and the end. And we don't have to <laughs> worry about how he gets home for Thanksgiving. And, you know, so that's right. When you say there's that expense, that's, you know, again, I'm insuring a car and paying for gas. I'm happy to pay it compared to the time that it would take to not do that, not do it that way. <laughs> Sure. He can spend his time and you can spend time with him when he gets there. (laughs) Exactly. So uh, what about community colleges? So I know as homeschool families, a lot of here in Texas, anyways, a lot of homeschool families utilize community college while in high school and after graduation. And I know that we often recommend it as a as a good option. How is it financially? Is it a good option to go ahead and do a community college or or do partial community college before heading to a university? Uh, Yeah, that is a a very common strategy. Now, it's important to realize that many states are at different levels as far as how well that is all integrated and how well it works together. Here in Wisconsin, the legislature kind of forced some of the four-year colleges to get in line and start figuring out building some pathways that would allow you to start elsewhere and move through the system. So some places it's very well defined, other places it isn't, first of all. The other important thing to realize is a lot of times you may be able to get credit, but it may not help you graduate. Like my son test is in chemical engineering. He got a lot of credits by taking the AP courses and doing well in the AP exams, but some of his credits just aren't going to count because he doesn't need all that history and all that English. Yeah. So right. to graduate, he needs more chemical engineering courses to graduate. So mm-hmm. sometimes you'll get the credit for it. Sometimes it just won't help you graduate. And other times, you know, some colleges are more particular than others. And I would say the more prestigious co- the college is, the more likely it is that they're going to say, we don't want to take other people's credits because we, we don't trust that they're the, at the level that they need to be. You know, a calculus course at the local community college is different than the calculus course at your flagship state university. Mm-hmm. The flagship state university is taking the top 10% of the high school class. Their calculus course is pretty advanced and you know moves at a much quicker pace than the typical community college calculus. So there's Sometimes a, colleges won't take other colleges. Sometimes your credits won't transfer yes. even from college to college. So that might be something to think about. Like don't hopscotch around through your schools. Pick one and plan to stick with it. And if you're going to use the strategy, you need to investigate not just the school you're going to start at, but also the school you're going to go to and verify how the credits transfer, understand the process. Mm -hmm. As an example, there's an engineering school here in town, Milwaukee School of Engineering, that has a matriculation agreement with a local community college. And it's like, well, we'll take this math class and this math class, but not those. So you know that ahead of time. Well, right. You just Ask pick, the question. Pick, right? you pick the right Ask math the class. Again, and that's one of some of the stuff that's becoming more apparent at a lot of a lot of states are kind of requiring that now is start looking at the courses at, at these other schools and figuring out which ones you like and which ones you don't and get it out there so students know. So there's often some some form of agreements, articulation agreements and so forth that'll help you move back and forth and make it a little clearer. So that's just some extra planning. And then, of course, the other side of it is many parents again and families you know sometimes the savings isn't significant enough where they say why don't we just go where we want to start and just go there the whole time you make a lot of friends your first few weeks your freshman year when you transfer in it's a little tougher and again looking for that for your on-campus college experience and sometimes you can do that you know again in our state schools there's a few of our state schools that aren't all that much more than the local community college as far as tuition you still have to deal with the room and board but the tuition isn't that's significantly different. Yeah, the room and board is a real hit to the budget. When my uh, middle daughter was looking at different schools, 
she was in one school. She was going to transfer to a school that was closer to home. And everything was going to be covered by her grants and loans, except the rooming board was $1,000 a month. And I said, um, yeah, if you're going to go to that school, you're going to live at home. So she ultimately decided to stay at the school where she was, and that worked out really well. But that room and board is really pricey. Yes, it's highly variable as well, depending on the schools. And obviously, through downtown New York, it's going to be more in general. But a lot of schools, they, I think that's a little bit of a profit center for them where they, and again, a lot of these schools are also buildings in pretty nice looking dorms. The old concrete bunkers that we stayed in when, you know, 20 <laughs> or 30 years ago, they don't build those anymore. But, you know, they have these nice, nice four room suites with, you know, one or two bathrooms shared among four private rooms and maybe a little kitchen that goes with it. You know, so it's, again, pretty advanced and pretty nice. And often they're a little more expensive than what you'd pay, again, for that old concrete bunker that we're familiar with. Fred, can you talk a little bit about what you told me yesterday, how, um, and you kind of touched on it when you said, you know, Harvard might be this expensive or a school might be really expensive, but they'll offer some things to students. The example you gave me between uh, Texas A&M and Rice University, that was right. really eye-opening for me. Yeah, a lot of the private schools, especially the prestigious private schools, can be very generous. Another good example would be Stanford. Stanford just did a press release not too long ago that said any family whose family income is under $100,000, their tuition will be zero and the room and board will be zero automatically. That's great. If your income is up to 150000 then tuition will be zero. So that makes them, you know, lower than most state schools across the board if your right. incomes are in, that, in those ranges. Now, the challenge, of course, is Stanford is extremely selective, and your student's going to have to be a really strong student, you know, essentially the rock star of students. But if you can get accepted, the price will fall in line. Uh, a lot of other private schools, maybe they're not going to get you to zero, but they know who the competition is. They know your local flagship might be, you know, 25000 and they know for kids that can get into that type of school, they've got to be somewhere near 25000 to make it happen. So they might offer grants and scholarships of various types, and, you know, and then you might average somewhere in that neighborhood, whether it's need-based or merit-based awards, just depending on each um, different opportunity. So what would you say, like you, if you gave us your top five things for people whose kids are rising eighth graders, ninth graders, 10th graders, what are your top five things that they should be doing getting started right now? Well, first of all, start earlier than you think you need to because the four years go really fast. I think <laughs> that's a shock for most people. An important thing to realize with the way that need-based aid works, it's based on your tax return, but it's based on your tax return that starts your middle of your sophomore year and ends the middle of your junior year. So for a lot of families, by the time they're really looking at it, it, they might discover, especially with the new rules, you might discover, oh, if I had just gotten my income down by a couple thousand more, I could have gotten a much bigger grant if I had only known. I think the challenge for a lot of families is you starting early, understanding how it works and lining things up. It's just like planning a vacation or anything else where if you start early and the more you learn and the more you get involved in it, the more likely you are to find the good deals, understand what you're getting into. You know, avoid the tourist traps or what, however you want, <laughs> whatever it might be, right? Say, well, I could, you know, here's a good restaurant the locals go to, but that's harder to find than the, you know, the tourist trap that's advertised everywhere. It's the same with the colleges. You know, there might be a college or two that would be a really good fit, but you got to spend the time to figure out which one it is and understand how the pricing works and that type of thing. So I would say, again, start with figuring out need-based aid. By the end of your junior year, I tell people you need to have a good scholarship plan. Are we going to do you know, essentially no effort in scholarships whatsoever and just take the, whatever the colleges give us? Are we going to do a little bit of effort or a lot of effort based on how do we find scholarships and what, you know, is our student a good fit for scholarships? You need to have a test plan. Again, so the ACT and SAT is now going test optional at a lot of colleges, which now makes it a little more complicated, unfortunately. Yes, it's great to have the choice, but now because we have the choice, we got to figure it out. In the past, it was, mm -hmm. you know, do the best you can because they're going to, everybody wants your score. That was easier to deal with from a, what are we going to do standpoint? But now it certainly benefits students that can't test as well. But students that can test well, now you have to decide, well, should I put a lot of effort in putting up a good test score and then use that as part of my application or not? And it depends on the schools, it depends on the scores, it depends on your goals. Um, so test plan, scholarship plan, then parents need to work on how they're going to pay. Should they, you know, if you think you can afford a thousand a month, well, get started now. Why wait? If 
you can't afford anything per month, well, then what's plan B and plan C? And is it more income? Is it low cost options with school? Is it whatever it might be? But somehow you've asked that reality check of, well, if you're going to spend 35000 per student and you've got three kids, well, you're going to need $100,000. If you're going to spend 70000 times three kids, you're going to need $200,000. Yes, those are big numbers. They are, for a lot of families, though, they might earn that in a year or two or three. So it's not insurmountable. It's certainly possible. But are you willing to do what it takes to figure it all out? So, that, you know, and then I get to go with that is, well, how much are parents going to pay for and how much are students going to pay for? A lot of parents have, you know, some sort of rule, like we'll pay whatever the state school is going to cost. If you want to go to a private school that's more than that, then we'll help you pay for it, but you're responsible for it. So we'll either lend you the money or we'll help you borrow the money, or but we're not just paying because you want to. And then you need to have a good working school list, which means you need to have done your research and or some visits so that you say, well, these are the three, five, seven, 10, 12 schools that we're applying to. And to go with that, you should have a good idea what those schools may cost so that you're not blindsided. First, well, two things, what they will cost and are these schools that you have a realistic shot at getting accepted to. You know, occasionally I'll have a parent that says, I've got a really smart kid. He gets uh, a lot of B's and a, a few C's. <laughs> the reality of it is if you know, at a lot of high schools today, if you, if you show up, you get a B and if you try a little, you'll get an A. So, there's a lot of great inflation out there. So let's, maybe you're not as good as you think he is. And, uh, and then on top of that, and then he's going to be a brain surgeon. And he's already getting B's and C's in biology in high school. It's like, yeah, it's certainly possible, but I don't, you know, might want to have a plan B. You know, what is the, what's a realistic direction? And that, I think by the time you get all that worked out, you'll be well on your way. But that's, there's a lot of steps in each of those ideas. So a lot of that, uh, those are very hard conversations to have with your kids or as together as parents. So some of those are difficult conversations. Do you have any advice on that part of it, of how to tackle the difficult conversations? I mean, certainly one of the things would be to, you know, some advice that I've had to use is, again, because I could talk college all day long, all the time, and it just annoys the heck out of my kids, <laughs> is, you know, we kind of have to have well, you know, here's our time to talk about college. And the rest of the time, we're just not going to talk about it. it mm -hmm. Every time that thought crosses my mind, I can't just automatically start a college conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to just write it down and save it for the for the next time that we're going to have that. You know, again, because it crosses my mind a lot. But having times where you talk about it and times where you agree to take a break. And then starting early. And I think as homeschoolers, I've, you know, this, I was thinking about this after we talked yesterday. You know, on my website, we've got the cost of colleges by state. You could make a little project out of working mm -hmm. with your students to figure out, well, what are the five need-based aid programs? By mm -hmm. the way, there's an article on my website that will give you the five need-based aid programs. Right. <laughs> um, so that they can you can learn together, right? It could be a little project that you're both working on. And what is an SAI and how does it work? And can we find a calculator that will figure out what our SAI is? And can we figure out what the inputs are? and build a plan around it. So you could have a number of different curriculum ideas around Yeah, that's that. great. Um, yeah, that's a great idea. And you could say, well, let's compare what, you know, this is Johnny and this is Susie. One's looking at the state school, one's looking at a private school, and one's going to spend this, and one's going to spend that. What does their family budgets look like? How are they the same? How are they different once they graduate? And one of them has zero payments, or one of them has $200 payments, or one of them has $700 payments, or even... Part of the math is, well, if they borrowed $50,000, what would the payments even be? How do we figure that out? You know, so there's all kinds of things that could be a learning opportunity. You could build yeah. a curriculum around it, I think. That would be one thing that I would consider if I was homeschooling. You know, again, there's a lot of information on my website. All Everything I just talked about is there. Awesome. So you can, there's a calculator there. There's, you know, how do you pay? There's everything about financial aid, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess I have it down to the next step, which is actually build it into a true curriculum. I am working on that actually. So I will be launching a course on how to plan and pay for college, but it's I'm building it that the parents are the students. But you probably could. Yeah, that's great though. Well, in a lot of homeschooling, the parents and the kids are students together. Um, together. I've always mm -hmm. said that the first student in my homeschool was actually 
me uh, because mm-hmm. I was, you know, I had this idea that we're going to do this. And I had to learn as we went. One of the other things I would suggest to our listeners and Brad, you can weigh in on this, but you know, when you start having kids, you need to start developing your philosophy about what you're going to expect out of your kids for higher education. What I told my kids was it was their job to be good students. And it was my job to provide them with the opportunities that um, allowed them to get scholarships or, you know, go to go to dual enrollment or whatever it was, but that their education was going to be their responsibility. So when my middle daughter was in school, she did take out loans for the portion that wasn't covered. And, you know, she had a lot of skin in the game. And if a professor canceled a class, she was miffed. She was like, hey, I'm paying for my education. (laughs) I earned these scholarships and I have these loans and I want, you know, my class or if kids were acting up in the class and wasting time, she would tell them, hey, I'm here to learn and I'm going to get done in four (laughs) years. So I think, you know, you want to develop a philosophy about your your expectations uh, and about how college is going to go and start talking to your kids when they're younger about that. Like I tell my son, you're going to go to college. He's already got his college paid for, um, fortunately for him. So I'm like, you're going to college. It's not a matter of if you're going to go, you're going to go because it's it's this gift for you. But, you know, we talk all the time about, well, it's going to be your responsibility to learn and you can't waste the opportunities. And, you know, you have to do well in, in your studies now, because even though your college is paid, you can't go to any place you want if you were messing around and not taking your education seriously. Right. Absolutely. I think there's a challenge that parents need to realize um, because it's not perfectly obvious all the time, but there's the top kids out there where college is the right thing, right? They're going to be the good student. They're self-motivated. They love to learn. They're going to be great. And of course, there's the kids on the other end of the spectrum that they don't have discipline. They don't want to do it already. And it's a waste of time slash money to try and force them into it. And then there's the kind of the kids in between where they go to the right school or they get the right professors that motivate them, then their trajectory might be really good. Whereas if they get stuck with that professor that doesn't care and they don't care either, and then all of a sudden it it peters out. So I think that's important to realize that college isn't the only answer for a lot of kids. Yeah. And for some kids, it's a great idea. For other kids, it's an awful idea. For many kids, it's, you know, if we're going to do this, we got to do it right or it could could backfire. So. You know, the statistics say that something like less than half people that start college finish college. Mm-hmm. Um, so to take on debt and spend all this time and then not have the degree, that's probably the worst option versus just not going and saving the money and effort and, and maybe going later when you're ready. Right. Or occasionally have someone say, well, we're going to start where you get the lowest level uh, nursing certificate and then we'll be able to work and do some low-level nursing in a nursing home or something and then we can use that money and then eventually after eight or nine years of you know living at a low-cost lifestyle and living at home and so forth but I should be able to graduate with my nursing degree and then go out and get the real job in the hospital. Now mathematically you'd be much better off to just go do the four-year degree, borrow whatever it takes, go get the real job and instead of making $15 an hour as a low-level nurse go make $45 an hour and then overtime on a Saturday night and make $70 an hour, then waste your time making $12 an hour and stretching it out. Because the income, you are very easily pay off that nursing degree. The challenge is you got to live like the college student still, and then you have a lot (laughs) of extra money. A lot of graduates are going to immediately say, well, I need a new apartment with new furniture and a new car, and I need Mm -hmm. (laughs) their lifestyle instantly uses up their entire higher salary, so then the student loans are still a burden. Sure. Um, But planning well, I think, is important. Do you also talk to families about the degrees their students want to pursue? Because I know we've all, we all know someone who got some obscure degree and they're not working in that field and they're maybe working at Starbucks or they're doing something totally different. Do you, does that part figure into your college planning? For sure. So the challenge I think is, is there's education for education's sake on one extreme, and then there's education for a specific job on the other end, right? So if you want to be an elementary ed teacher, there's really one path. You will get an elementary ed teaching degree, which then allows you to go get a teaching license, and now you can be a teacher. There's maybe in some states other ways because of the teacher shortages and that type of thing, but that's the typical path. And if you take that major, you kind of know what you're doing when you're done. Now, if you go a history major or an English major or a liberal arts majors of various sorts. There's nothing wrong with that, especially for the motivated kids, because the motivated kids are going to take this broad education and they're going to find some interesting way to apply it to some industry or some career. I think where the liberal arts fails is for the kind of the C student that goes on and 
struggle their way through the easiest degree they could find just so they have the piece of paper. And then they end up, you know, again, not really applying the degree much. And, and I think that's a real issue. But I, like I said, for the top kids that are going to land on their feet, no matter what they do, will an engineering degree be better than a liberal arts degree? Well, starting salaries are better, but midterm and longer salaries aren't, you know, because a lot of those liberal arts people become the managers and become the, because they can, instead of just doing engineering, they can tie engineering with sales and, you know, accounting and some of these other things because they've, mm-hmm. they've, they've touched all those areas in their life. Mm-hmm. And they know how yeah. they see the big picture. And again, not always, I'm overgeneralizing. And I think sure. that's the reality is a lot of people will get to where they're going with or without a degree, but maybe the degree will just give them a head start. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, Brad, um, a lot of times when we're wrapping up our conversation with our guests, we like to know uh, something personal about them, like uh, what's a hobby or something unusual people wouldn't expect. So what's a hobby that you have or something unusual about you that uh, people wouldn't expect? Well, so for the hobby, I like board games. And so they're kind of the, not Monopoly, but Agricola <laughs> or some of these more, you know, Splendor or some of these advanced games that a lot of people probably have never heard of. And I like the ballroom dance. So Blackjack, <laughs> Waltz, Rumble, nice. that That's kind of stuff. Fun. That's awesome. Uh, my family loves board games too. One of our favorites is uh, Pandemic. <laughs> yeah, we like that. And, yeah, when uh, I played that before. It was so apropos, but yes. Right, yeah, true. it's it's a lot different playing it now. Well, Brad, we really appreciate your time. I think you've given our listeners a lot of uh, food for thought, and um, we're excited that you were willing to come on and share that with everyone. Yeah, thank you for having me. Here at the end of our podcast, we'd like to answer a big question. Melody, what's our big question for today? Our big question for today is, does anyone else have sticker shop when it comes to summer camps? What can I do for my kids this summer without having to get a second mortgage? Oh, I mean, that is so true. I looked at some for my son, $350 a week. I was like, mm, mm-hmm. that's not in my wheelhouse. They are oh, ridiculous. And it's harder and harder to find uh, low cost options, even through churches. I remember, you know, BBS camps used to just be free for people. Well, we're saying that's up not a very common anymore. My son's going to three different VBS programs, and there's no cost for any That's of them. That's great. That's I know. Great. I'm and really thankful. Still. Yeah. Another option is, so in our area, the sheriff department puts on a camp every year for kids called Junior Deputy Camp, oh, and it's fun. free. Yeah, my son went to it last year. They had a great time. They fingerprinted each other. They got to see a SWAT That's vehicle. Really they cool. got to get in a helicopter. The fire department also has a program called Junior Fire something or other. That got filled up and the wait list got filled up because again, it's free. That's another Um, problem. You have to get in on them early. Oh, I know yeah. our state parks offer some camps, like day camps or one-time mm-hmm. kind of things that they're doing. They offer those. Libraries are great over the summer. They summer usually have reading programs, programs are on. fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you get involved in like multiple libraries, summer reading programs, you could be doing something every day for free through that. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> and then a lot of movie theaters have a summer movie thing where it's free or a nominal cost. Um, yeah. We're going to do one that's like a dollar per person. So my son and I can see a movie once a week through the summer for two bucks. And there's a free bowling program. I was just going to say that we've done it in the past and he's been asking, can we do the bowling again Mm -hmm. this year? I'm like, maybe. That sounds fun. I was talking to a mom yesterday on a field trip and we were discussing the sticker shock that comes with camps. She's got mm-hmm. three kids. So if $350 yeah. a week is bad no. for me. I no. mean, <laughs> she'd have to get a job to put those kids into a camp. And I said, you know what? I think we can come up with something for the kids ourselves, yeah. you know, keep it small so that, uh, you know, there's a small number of kids and, um, I've seen that idea before. Jennifer, do you have any experience with that? Yeah, well, I don't have any experience, but we're about to host a summer camp. The co-op group that I uh, teach classes with during the school year, we're hosting a summer camp next week uh, for our homeschool community. Um, and it's not op- we're opening it up to anyone who homeschools in our area. So it's not just like for the kids that have been in the co-op. And we, we are doing it for this reason is that a lot of us have kids and summer camps were way too expensive. So we thought, why don't we just do it ourselves? 
So we're doing a, a little, we're just doing it in one of our local parks and we're not renting pavilions or anything. So we're just doing it in open space. So we don't have to pay for a space. And mm-hmm. we have teachers volunteering their time. We have some teenagers volunteering their time to be helpers. We're doing a space theme. We're really excited about it. We're doing art and science camp. So it'll be four days and it's like three or four hours a day. And we'll do a whole bunch of different art and science projects that are space-based. And we're doing it for ages four through 13, I think are the ages we settled on in different age groups and up to 60 kids. So it's, you can do it on your own and and we're doing it at minimal cost. We're charging a very small supply fee to cover our costs. But if you have a team of people that's willing to help jump in with that, you can definitely make it happen yourself. How fun. That's wonderful. And yeah, the thing is, is uh, what was that whole, if you build it, they will come you know, don't don't right. worry, don't stress, don't wait for somebody else to do it. Um, mm-hmm. You can do it yourself. And that was uh, from Field of Dreams, of course. Some right. people probably have not seen that movie. The other thing I was going to say is that we focus on uh, free movies in the park, free mm-hmm. concerts in the park, yeah. free uh, performances in the park. And so, you know, between that and, and just getting in water and stuff, we have a great summer at a really low cost. Mm-hmm. It just, uh, it's not all just drop off and, and leave and, you know, take my money. It's, uh, <laughs> I've got to figure out how to incorporate it in my work day or, you know, work around it. But where there's a will, there is a way and you can have a great summer. Before we go, we want to leave you with a few reminders. SAT testing is over this month and won't come back until late August, but you can start SAT test prep with your student on collegeboard.org or on khanacademy.org. That's K-H-A-N academy.org. If you want to support us here and help us grow, it would be great if you'd help new people find our show by leaving us a five-star review and sharing this episode on social media. Remember that you can get 20% off the cost of your Transcript Maker subscription with the code HAPPY. That's H-A-P-P-Y in all caps. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at happyhomeschoolpod at gmail.com. And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at happyhomeschoolpod. If you want to learn more about anything we discussed today, we publish our show notes on Facebook after every new episode. Next episode, we'll be discussing the ins and outs of Enrichment Academies. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Holly. I'm Melody. And I'm Jennifer. Happy Happy homeschooling. homeschooling. Hi, this is your host, Holly Williams-Zerbach. Thank you for listening to the Happy Homeschooler podcast, a Transcript Maker production. My co-hosts are Melody Gillum and Jennifer Jones. This podcast was produced by Matthew Bass and edited by Nora Williams. Our graphic design is by Pete Soloway, and our music is by The Great Pangolin. You can find more of her work on YouTube and Twitter at Kylie Wins. That's K-A-I-L-E-Y Wins. If you'd like to help our podcast grow, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, tell people about us. I don't remember who's the host of this episode. Is it me, y'all? I believe so. I think so. Okay. Okay. We try to rotate, but sometimes we get off kilter here.